0: We are broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactor Brokers Studios. I'm Pim Fox along with Lisa Abramowitz. Our guest now is Phil Orlando. He is the Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated Investors. Thank you very much for being
2: here, Phil. Always Th- a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Happy New Year, belated. Happy New Year to you. Thank are you. we
0: in a trade war?
2: Uh, we've been in a trade war for a while. Uh, U.S. China situation? Yes. Yes. Uh, but but one, I, I, you know, I don't know if trade war is the right word, negotiation, skirmish. I mean, we, we think we think there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and we're hoping that light is not the headlight of an oncoming train. And, and we think over the course of the next two months, we're going to get some, you know, some visibility on this. How See, would it, in, sorry,
0: but how would an investor actually position a portfolio until they find out? whether we're going to get an increase in tariffs, whether it's going to cost more to yeah. make products anywhere no, that, in the world. That's
2: a great question. So what, what we've got, in our opinion, has been this elaborate kabuki dance that's been going on for a while, you know, threatening tariffs and, and you know, this and that uh, in order to achieve the objective. Now, what is the objective? So you, you look at the situation from a financial standpoint. The United States is running a $600 billion balance of trade deficit against the world. And and China, uh, slightly more than four hundred billion, is 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 the largest defender. That's the reason why why the administration I think has focused their attention on China. Now, what these discussions, negotiations, where we hope they end up by this March first deadline, is is twofold. Number one, China agrees to narrow that deficit, cut it in half, let's say to something in the two hundred billion dollar neighborhood, by buying more of our stuff that they need, agricultural products like. Soybean and corn, uh, energy, aerospace and defense electronics, automobiles, things like that. The, the, the thonier issue here is the, the theft of intellectual property. And, and, and that's that's where I think this thing gets stickier. Now, our view is that this ends well, that the United States is under pressure. The Chinese economy and financial markets are under pressure. The leaders want to come to a deal. And so that's our base case. Now, part of the 20% correction that we saw in stocks over the last four months of the year was in part based upon the market's perception that this ends badly and that we're looking at a recession in the U.S., maybe a recession in China, maybe a global recession. Based upon our analysis, that that's not the right conclusion. So we're actually pretty excited with the S&P at 2,300, you know, right around Christmas. We, we've had this nice 10% rally over the course of the last you know, couple of weeks. We think we're running into some resistance here. We could absolutely, in our view, see a retest over the course of the next couple of months. But there are these three critical signposts in March, the trade thing with China being the first of them, the FOMC meeting in the middle of the month, and then the Brexit deadline at the end of the month. We, we think we get some clarity, some positive clarity in all three of those issues over the course of the the month of March. So this volatility that we're seeing in the first quarter, we think leads to a a much better environment in the back nine months of the year. So we think the market's going to end up, you know, in pretty good shape. People look at our forecasts and say, you guys are lunatics. Uh, But, you know, look, if, if those three things fall into place and we think they will, We think stocks are going to be a lot higher 12 months from now
1: so let's talk specifics here because uh, we did just report that blackrock is planning to cut three percent of its global workforce it comes a day after state street said that they were going to be cutting a significant portion of their workforce Uh, we've seen uh, financials on the asset management side as well as on the banking side really beaten up are you seeing value there
2: you know lisa i've been doing this now for 39 years. And I've noticed a trend that, that when the asset managers do these things, hires or fires, they usually do them at exactly the wrong time at the inflection point in the cycle. When, when they're hiring people, it's usually we're about to get a big blow off on a bull rally. And when they're firing people, it's usually at the bottom of the cycle and we're about to take off. Our, our best guess, based upon what we just talked about with the China question, is that stocks are going to be in a lot better shape 12 months from now than they are today. Uh, and and if, if, if a couple of the big bellwethers are laying off a couple of percent of their workforce, that gives me greater confidence that we're at, a, we're at an inflection point, ready to go higher.
1: Although, in, in fairness, the asset management industry is facing a pretty fundamental shift toward passive management and toward reduced costs and a lot of other things that are causing uh, them to want to reduce headwinds uh, overhead. Well, but, uh,
2: and, and that's an interesting point. That and, and, and if we were to have this conversation two years ago, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. But if you look at the trends over the last couple of years um the active has actually been beating passive from performance standpoint over the last couple of years let's be honest and and we're starting to see that shift back over to active management in terms of asset flows versus passive because investors are looking at their statements the last couple of years and saying well, wait a second all right i'm paying 50 basis points less on fees but i just gave up 500 basis points in relative performance maybe maybe there's a place where, where both of these strategies can coexist.
0: Phil Orlando, you still have a 3,100 price target for the S&P 500?
2: 12 months out, yes, we 12 do. 12 months out, okay. So we're at
0: 23, 23, let's say 25 right now. 25 well, you're you're, 80, you're right?
2: just under 2,600. Yeah. All right. You, we bottomed at 2,350 right around Christmas. What I'm telling you is we just rallied 10% up to what we think is a resistance level of 2,600. I think over the next two months... We could absolutely retrace that level. Let's call it back in that 23- 2300. Yeah, I think we're gonna retest twenty three hundred because of concern about Brexit and the Fed and China and the government shutdown and, and and the stuff that Lisa just talked about with the layoffs and whatever, is the labor market at, at risk? Um, and then I think as as we get through this first quarter, and in my opinion, get some positive clarity on some of these issues, then I think investors say, Well, wait a second, we just contracted multiples from 18 times earnings to 14 times earnings, because we thought the economy was about to roll in a recession. That's not happening. Inflation's 2%. Treasury yields are at 2.7%. We need to get multiples back to 18 times earnings. And that multiple expansion with a little bit of earnings gain, maybe 5 or 6% this year, is, is going to give us a nice rally in the last nine months of the year.
1: So just in 30 seconds here, what were you buying with most conviction in the December sell-off?
2: I think energy and emerging markets are the things that look most interesting to us here over the last couple of weeks.
1: Energy stocks and emerging market stocks? Yes. In any particular nations?
2: Uh no, I'm not that smart. <laughs>
1: Come on. You don't give yourself enough credit, Phil. I love your insights. It's always a wonderful speaking with you. And I like the bullishness. And honestly, there is a question, especially if uh, President Trump really is using the, the stock market as a gauge of his success, that he will do everything that he wants to do and can do to keep it up. So there is that also tail uh, tailwind that is potentially boosting markets as well. Phil. Phil Orlando, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Phil Orlando is Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated Investors. The minutes from the December Federal Reserve meeting indicated a willingness to wait, a sort of dovish tilt that has given some markets some confidence. Joining us now is Steve Blitz, chief U.S. economist for T.S. Lombard, uh, and he uh, joins us now by phone. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm just wondering, uh, from your perspective, do you think that the Federal Reserve will hike rates again this year?
3: No. I, I don't. And uh, first of all, Happy New Year, everybody! Um, Happy New Year. No, I don't. I, do, I don't think they're going to hike because I think you know you always get this very interesting uh, Fed speak, which which has at the moment this notion that the asset markets are pricing one world and the economy is a different world. When we all know that asset prices determine economic activity, it's how monetary policy works. What has occurred? To date, especially in terms of the curve in the fixed income markets and the treasury markets, will knock gro- the average growth rate for the year below trend. So let's call it one and a half, two percent. <clears throat> and in that environment, uh, there is no reason why the Fed would increase rates.
0: Steve Blitz, do you believe that the Federal Reserve fully understands and concurs with the notion that economic growth is dependent, okay. as well as the direction of asset prices, is dependent on their monetary actions?
3: Well, it's, 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 it's a great question. Um, the short answer to that question is obviously yes, otherwise what are they doing? Um, But when you look at uh, the minutes and they talk about what are the risks to growth, uh, they put monetary policy about fourth. And first is what's happening in the global economy. And second is the shift from stimulus to a lack of stimulus, the drop off of the stimulus from the, from the, uh, from the federal deficit. So those two factors in and of itself uh is number one and number two and then they get into other things so um at the moment they're seeing their policy is somewhat benign i disagree with them and i think the reason they first of all they see that is because they're looking at the level of nominal rates against growth in the economy and they're saying you know money is still cheap you know two and a half percent funds rate against four odd percent nominal growth in gdp But you have to look at it as an adjustment. You've gone from 10 years of zero rates to the money markets being a viable asset. And 10 years is a long time. There's a lot of habits both on the borrowing and the investing side um, that reflect zero rates. And last September, when the funds rate went over two, we know from behavioral finance, people don't react continuously. They act react in discrete steps. And that discrete step was when we got a two handle on funds and all of a sudden, uh, as the old expression is, the dime dropped. Um, And that would have to be an expression that people haven't been in the market more than 10 years would know.
1: Well, let's talk about the balance sheet, because this is where the focus is turning the $4 trillion of assets on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. What do you expect them to do with that? And how much is that really affecting uh, the, the sort of shrinking of it? How much is that actually affecting markets right now?
3: Well, I think there's two parts of that balance sheet that are, uh, that are up for discussion. Okay, so one, which was in the minutes, and I'm going di- to not dismiss this, but just put that aside because I don't think it's relevant for this discussion, which is the impact of shrinking the balance sheet and the internal plumbing of bank funding. Uh, it's an issue, and does the funds rate mean anything anymore and all these things, but that's, that's, it's an issue, the contingency planning, it's important, but it's not important at the moment. And what's important at the moment is that the Fed is stepping away from buying 300-odd billion of treasuries this year, plus whatever the banks are pulling themselves out of, the, uh, out of reserves and transferring it elsewhere, which means the, the Fed has to adjust their assets by selling, in effect, more treasuries, although they're not really selling, but in any event, let's just say selling to make it easier, um, at a time when you have a doubling of the deficit. And that means that the private markets have to not only accommodate and for what the treasury is selling, but for what the Fed is not buying. And that's what has the markets a bit spooked. And if you'll notice, with the drop in yields uh, at the, in the term level, the terms of seven to 10-year, even five to 10-year yields, the real yields haven't gone down that much. The inflation premiums dropped a lot. And the real yields have stayed up because you need to attract that capital to buy treasuries. So uh, I think it means a lot. And I think that it was telling that when Powell was at the AEA last Friday, and we'll hear what he has to say today if he, if he reiterates the comments or expands upon them when he was for the first time, he said, look, if, and he said it in the context of treasury issuance that in the context of treasury issuance, if they think that the fed matters, that the Fed's balance sheet policies matter, they will adjust their policies. And I think that, and I know we have limited time, but I think that the first step the Fed's going to make is they're going to taper it, not end, but they're going to taper the pace of QT, and they'll get a nice you know, PR benefit from that. And maybe they go in and instead of buying seven to 10-year paper, maybe they buy some bills to try and get a little steepness back into
0: the curve. Thanks very much for being with us. Steve Blitz is chief economist at TS Lombard, speaking about the Federal Reserve and U.S. interest rates. The retail picture not very nice today for investors Macy shares down about 18 percent matt townsend joins us here in our bloomberg interactive broker studios matt is our global business reporter for bloomberg news and you can follow matt on twitter at matt underscore townsend okay matt underscore townsend yes. i thought that the holiday shopping season was supposed to be gangbusters and everything it was, was going to be right for the retail industry
4: that that's why this reaction is so, you know, steep. I mean, the story going into this was yes, this this is going to be a robust holiday season. Uh, maybe the best of the recovery. You know, last year was was basically the best of the recovery to that point. So you know, investors had this idea baked in that this is going to be a good holiday. Retailers will post good results. Results have been good throughout the year. Macy's comes out and says our sales were weak. We're cutting our uh, earnings forecast or earnings guidance and the whole market sells off. So investors are just pouring out of retail stocks.
1: So uh, what I'm wondering is, are investors overreacting to an idiosyncratic issue with Macy's, considering the fact that the guidance wasn't that bad for Target, and Bed Bath and Beyond even guided upward. and Investors basically are saying, we don't believe you.
4: Yeah, that's the question. Is this a department store issue? Uh, Kohl's, another department store, uh, had an underwhelming report on their holiday sales. Um, you know, the thing about Target, uh, which some of the analysts were calling out was, yes, they had this 5% growth, but they didn't raise their their uh, guidance for the fourth quarter. They didn't say anything about profits. So, you know, every holiday, there's this big um, battle between, do you go after sales or do you protect profits? So if you go after sales, but hurts your profit, investors are going to hit you there. If you don't hit on sales, they're going to hit you there. So, yes, this is raising red flags in the investment community that maybe the holiday isn't as good as expected and consumers maybe are ready to pull back on their spending potentially.
0: Well, if you look at all of the websites of these major retailers, they are all offering discounts and sales of up to 20%. That kind of matches the decline in the stock of Macy's today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean Macy's is offering an extra twenty percent off, an extra fifteen percent off. I mean, if they've trained the customer to wait for sales and to wait until prices are cut, what hope do they have of maintaining those margins?
4: Right. That's one of the things we were talking about this morning is shoppers are so savvy now. They they know all the prices, they know all the promotions, and they basically And they
0: do know how to use mobile phones. I've they heard do not that they, use they know how phone. to compare and contrast. Yeah.
4: So you're right oh, a lot of I, a, a lot wild of, idea a lot of shoppers do wait till the end for for discounts or sales they're very savvy um, you know but d- just back to department stores you know one of the things if, if people are shifting from their purchases from department stores to say a target you know we don't know Walmart, what Walmart yet did yet so maybe Walmart did well you know that's also a potential sort of negative sign for the economy if they're the trading down effect of shoppers are going from a department store shopper to a discount shopper
1: so can you just give us some perspective here? Have we heard enough to know that, yes, Macy's will be a bellwether for retailers in the first quarter?
4: We have not. Um, when the dust settles, when they when all, the, all these companies report their fourth qu- quarter earnings, which won't be till February because their quarters run through January, that's when we'll really know. Um, and so this could just be, you know, Macy's and Kohl's did not have good qu- did good holidays, but Best Buy, Walmart did really well. Some of these other chains, obviously, there's Amazon. We know they obviously do, are a big holiday player. So, you know, we'll see. The story is not written at this point.
0: Taking a look at Costco, for example, Costco wholesale, same store sales in December, up 7.5%. Uh, that was uh, the same store sales for the total company. That was U.S. stores. So the total company
4: up 6% stock
0: is basically unchanged. So maybe they got it right and Macy's got it wrong.
4: Right. Again, Costco, a, a discount play. Um, you know, that's that's what we saw in the, in the last recession um, was, you know, there was this sort of deterioration among the sort of middle income retailers. Uh, and then, you know, consumers a little more worried about their finances shifting down to the discounters, dollar stores, things like that.
1: I think what it does do is it casts some high skepticism on all the claims about how the holiday season was fantastic, and I think that that perhaps is the big takeaway. So a little bit more caution heading into the earnings season.
0: Forty to fifty percent all uh, off all coats at Macy's, and I believe if you're you know gonna rush out, Matt Townsend,
1: fifty to eighty
0: five percent off for menswear.
1: Well, good to know. Matt Townsend, we'll let you go off and and shop because that's what you do at your desk all day, I'm sure. Not at all. He is a very hardworking reporter. Matt Townsend for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios.
0: Crude oil, today falling after a string of increases. The value of crude on the NYMEX, $52.13 for a barrel of crude. That's a decline of about a half a percent. Here to help us understand what's going on in the world of fossil fuel, Stephen Shork. He is the president of the Shork Group. Stephen, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. What do you think the price of oil is going to be at the end of the month? Are we staying around 50 $52 a barrel?
5: Uh, Yes, I don't see, Pim, uh, us going significantly higher. Perhaps uh, we can make a foray into the mid-50s. Keep in mind that uh, we had a significant sell-off at the end of 2018, where spot prices got down to about $42. So we're a solid $10 a barrel higher. Uh, We're pretty much now at the bottom of the market. That is to say, I think that $42 number uh, was overdone. Uh, You had a a significant amount of uh, psychological factors pushing all markets lower, and I think crude oil just fell in sympathy with everything else. So the market obviously got way too low at 42. At 52.55, when we look at the economics of pulling a barrel out of the oil, generally in here in North America, you're essentially at the bottom. The concern now going forward, why we'll probably see a cap on prices for at least the next two months, Pim, is that Demand for crude oil now is strong, but in the months ahead and certainly by the end of the first quarter, demand will be significantly lower because refineries here in North America and Northern Europe will go into their maintenance season, so they'll begin buying fewer barrels on the spot market of crude oil, uh, which should lead to some overhang going into the second quarter.
1: I'm just wondering, why have analysts gotten oil so wrong? What is the big variable that people keep underestimating with oil?
5: Uh, with oil, uh, right. That's an excellent question, uh, Lisa. And I think uh, certainly with regard to uh, oil, it's similar to what a natural gas, where we tend to look uh, solely on the supply side. So we, I think at this point, we put too much weight uh, on the impact of OPEC. Uh, part of uh, the run-up that we saw back in September, we keep in mind that we had about a $10 rally in September, which is at the weakest demand part of the month on speculation of what the pending Iran uh, sanctions, which went into effect on the November 1st, were going to impact the market. So we're always looking at the supply side, uh, and we tend to ignore the demand side. And I think uh, gauging demand, whether it's in oil or natural gas, that is uh, really the art uh, to forecasting right now. And similar to uh, natural gas, where I think too many forecasts took into consideration record production and completely ignored the fact that demand was keeping pace with that production.
0: Do you believe that Saudi production will remain at its current level? Uh, I do.
5: I think it will have to, if not, they will have to put more barrels on the market. Uh, The U.S. uh, perhaps now is producing as much as 12 million barrels a day, uh, which is by far the largest producer in the world. I do not expect to see any sort of significant pullback in that production, even down at these levels. Given that last summer production for 2019, you had the ability uh, for at least two months to hedge at $70, $75 a barrel. So I do believe we have a significant amount of future production that's already been sold at these levels. So those producers will have to continue to produce to offset those short positions in the future market. So Saudi really cannot uh, up production, I think, at a minimum, they will maintain production, if not have to pull production out of the market, given the strong response by U.S. um, producers.
1: Yeah, it's sort of interesting, you're talking about how people are overestimating OPEC. I'm wondering, what's the perfect price for U.S. producers?
5: Uh, U.S. producer right now, uh, keep in mind in 2014, uh, when everyone was under the assumption at the end of that year that uh, Saudi Arabia was trying to derail North American production, I said it then and I've said it ever since, and I'll continue to say it, Saudi was not trying to destroy U.S. production because they couldn't destroy U.S. or Canadian production. Uh, So that said, what Saudi Arabia actually did in 2015 was give the industry a shot in the arm and uh, did all the heavy lifting that the Fed's cheap capital. Uh, created that bubble. So now what I'm getting out here is that U.S. producers are much more profitable at lower levels, given the efficiencies they've created over the last three years. So at a minimum, depending on the play, you can make money with oil as low as $25 a barrel, uh, $35 a barrel. But if you're going to take a blended price, I would think to say that we are at these levels, uh, looking at my Bloomberg at oil right around $52 a barrel, we're pretty much at the bottom of the uh, market. You would want to see oil back to where we saw it uh, back in September, up around that $65, 75 level, and that would certainly be a sweet spot for U.S. producers.
0: Stephen Shork, in about 20 seconds, do you believe that the gasoline shortage in Mexico is going to have any effect on the price of oil? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, actually, Pim, uh, at this point, uh, I don't
5: think uh, the the Mexican uh, shortage at this point uh, will have much of an impact, especially given that gasoline supplies here in the United States are at an all time high and that will continue through the first quarter.
1: Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, oil definitely an important topic right now because it's also been a driver in uh, inflation expectations. As we as we've seen oil rebound, so too have five year inflation expectations, which have had uh, their best four day rally in a very long time. Stephen Shork, thank you so much for being with us, President of the Shork Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
1: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.